This is my comeback. This is my comeback story. This is Trey Lewis with Good Landing Recovery, and you're listening to the comeback. Hey guys, we're back. Trey Lewis here. I'm with my friend Nate McGill. What's up, Nate? How's it going, man? Going well. Thank you for being here today. I'm I'm very excited to be here today. Yeah, it's a big deal, man. We want to be able to use our time today to be able to inspire, to be able to bring out the best out of people, to be able to restore hope to families and to people who would listen to this. I've heard so many cool testimonies. Had a good friend of mine, uh, John Pope, that played this while he was doing some prison ministry back in Mississippi, um, North Mississippi, and and inspired some some inmates. It's awesome. It's just really cool, you know. You just never know, like how God's going to use this thing and and how far He'll take it. And so, just to get those kind of testimonies, and uh, you know, it really had me thinking about something. This past Saturday night, we do at a community event at Good Landing Recovery, and I was preaching out of Acts chapter nine, and it was the Apostle Paul's conversion, going from mm-hmm. Saul to Paul. And you know, I think about how many people. Uh, whenever they walk into whether it's a program or whenever they're still in the middle of active addiction, they're saying, "If I ever walked into a church, then the thing is going to burn down." <laughs> you know that if it lightning's going to strike or whatever. And, and I understand what they're saying, and I and I sometimes get that that religious people can oftentimes put a really bad taste into somebody's mouth that would be struggling. Well, we all know that that the church is created for those who are broken. Jesus came. Right. For the sick, he did not come for for the well, and you know when I look at Paul and I'm just thinking, you know, God is the the CEO, if you will, the hundred percent owner of the entire world. He can pick anybody he wants to do, right? He can encounter anybody. He's got all these people <laughs> who are already doing the right thing, right. who are already just just you know perfect by society standards, and he could have picked any of them. And he picks the guy who's breathing out murderous threats and said, "That's going to be the guy that mm. I'm going to use to write two thirds of the New Testament Ooh. and to still be impacting all of us today." And so, you know, we're here with you, Nate. I know you got an incredible story, and I know that you're going to be able to share some hope. With everyone who listens. Well, thanks for having me, man. So I think um, my story, and I'll put a disclaimer up front just to say that, you know, like when when anybody tells their story, they it's it's not just like the the information coming out of my mouth about the things that happened, but it's also the way that I'm going to tell the story at certain parts of this. There's probably going to be um, a little bit of woundedness that you'll feel because I think I'm still learning and I'm still going through things. So I guess if I'm going to start to my story, it's it's really kind of a cool thing to talk about the Apostle Paul. I'm going to tie right into that. What was going on with Mr. Saul was he had this religious spirit, right? And he thought he was headed in the right direction by what he was doing because that religious zealousness was causing him to, you know, do all those things that we look at now and go, man, he's just a murderous, crazy guy. But I can almost relate to that. Really, I can really relate to that when I think about my life. Okay. So growing up, my parents were at a small Baptist church when my sister passed away. Mm. And so um, she had cerebral palsy. That kind of caused a couple divisions with the church here and there. But more or less, like, we stopped going to church eventually. I remember going into Decula High School and not having a church 
that I was a part of. But I think early on, you know, I jumped right into the profession out of out of high school and started with a local access TV show that kind of launched my career in film and video. And then I, I kind of took it from there. I uh, took it into the church world after a knock on the door, got me into that world. And pretty soon I was doing events all over the Southeast. I was working for some of the biggest Christian bands, some of the best Christian teachers. And I think a lot of my uh, self-worth at that time really came from the approval of those people with seminary degrees, or, or not even that, but just they were very popular Christian-type folks. And so you wanted to emulate that. You wanted to become that. And as a video person, you're never really going to be the one on stage when your talent is putting them up on the big screen. So I think a lot of my self-worth came from that for a long time, um, that approval thing. But then I think it turned. And so after we did I was part of a church start, didn't go really well. I pivoted over into the movie business. And during the movie business uh, part of things, I started to really get most of my self-worth from the standards I would set. So, um, you know, made a Christian film, kind of the things I saw wrong in the church world. It's called Dangerous Calling. I don't even know if it's still available or around, but when it hit Blockbuster, my identity as a filmmaker was complete, you know. Now Blockbuster's out of business, so it's kind of funny. But, you know, like Netflix, you know, those things that I set my standard upon, like what does it mean to be a real filmmaker, you know, I, it was all about my standards. I guess because I felt rejected um, from the church world in a way, and so instead of it just being crushed by that, I just kind of went over to performance, started getting my self-worth from, checking these marks off the boxes. You know, what does it mean to be a filmmaker? Well, what's your budget got to be? Well, it's got to be over a million dollars. Well, it's got to be, you know, you got to be in the theaters. You got to be on tour. You got to be on the news channels, you know, and and be out there. And I think that my obsession with that really drove the success, the way that I defined it back then, right into my addiction. As we went along, we'd sell films to Warner Brothers, Netflix, and Amazon Prime, and we had to transition between the DVD market collapsing and the video on demand thing coming about. And so every movie, like you had to reinvent the wheel and you're putting in 20 hour days and it's seven days a week and you're just pushing it. And so when the recession happened in 2008, you know, it was like wake up call. Oh. What are you going to do? But in that day and age, um, we were lucky enough to get through it in that um, my partner took a teaching job at a university teaching some film. I was going to move out to L.A., but then I met a pretty girl. And that pretty girl became my wife. So a year later, I'm married. We just raised a million dollars to make this next movie. The pressure's built up. It became uh, an issue of trying to be both, being a good husband Within a year, we got pregnant. So the next year, like 2012, we're having our first child. I am in the middle of the biggest production of my life. Yeah. We're traveling all over the country. We're filming this big movie, big documentary, and the pressures are just mounting up, mounting up. So um, basically, I'm working 20 hours a day, seven days a week, pushing through. We get the movie done. We're opening an office in L.A. We got one here. Man, I'm just killing it on both ends and can't go further. You know, I just, I, it's not happening for me. And so for me, it was burning out, being in the bed, 
couldn't move, adrenal glands blown out, done. And it was just me going to the doctor going, look, doctor, I need anything to get me going that will work to get me out of this bed and get this movie done. Because none of them other jokers are going to do it. I got to do it myself. Mm-hmm. That was my belief. Whether you got a team, I'm sure they would have finished it just fine. You know, mm-hmm. we had an incredible investor guy. I'm sure he would have taken my place and jumped in and just said, I'll finish it, Nathan. Just go rest. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I wasn't about to let that happen. Yeah. So I went to the doctor, asked him to prescribe me, prescribed me a couple different things. We landed on an opiate, and I was off to the races. Wow. It worked for a while, you know, as they do. We're looking for a solution, right? Mm-hmm. So the drug is the solution to whatever our problem is. Mine at this point is I got to get this movie done. But it also made me feel pretty good. How old are you at this point? Man, I am 30-something, you know. Yeah. And um, Any drinking? You know, I never was a drinker. I never okay. drank very much. Now, I had casually used off and on. Uh, after I entered the entertainment world. So, you know, it's smoke pot every once in a while, have a beer every once in a while. When those things came and went throughout whatever circle that I was in at the time. No grip on you, though, whatsoever. Nah. I didn't cross that boundary. You know, they talk about you have like this, uh, well, what are they, you have that line, that uh, tolerance line. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just started taking so many opiates that I crossed it. You yeah. Know? And when I when I really got to doing like four or five a day, about 2014, I would say, then I probably crossed that that marker, and then went to the went into full blown addiction. Yeah, where I was probably just maintaining it, using to get by, and then went to full blown addict mode. 14, yeah, 2014. Yeah, 2014. I was also buying a brand new big old house, three and a half acres. Bought Mama a Suburban. It was a great wow. year financially. Like, we succeeded. We we got that movie done in the theaters, did a 32-city tour. I mean, like, I was just on every morning show there is, period, wow. you know. Um, back after, just like, back to back to back to back. So, press tours, we were all over the place. And then we did the theatrical run. The movie did well. We did video on demand. Your dad at this good. point? I'm a dad, yeah. Okay. Twice over. So oh, wow. Okay. 2014, we have our second. And even when I sat down with a pastor to explain the fact that I'm taking these prescription pills, I think I got a problem. I think I got an issue. You know, he's trading me Bible verses for bullet holes, doesn't know what to do with me. But he's the guy that helps us do videos or does this other thing or does, you know, no matter who I would talk to, it was still Nathan from that past. Mm-hmm. Well, he'll get it together. He's yeah. got this. Right. He'll come, you know. So it was almost like I disappear. Nobody from that world called to check on my kids. So, so let me ask you the right. So you're trying to confess to the pastor, hey, I'm, I'm struggling. Mm-hmm. I got a problem. Right. And he just... I mean, has no idea. Says, what... I'll call you. I'll, I want to meet with you and your wife. Yeah, I'll call you. Email, no response. So he never even meets with you. Never meets with us. Okay, so he just writes it off. You say maybe something on the front end of the email or something about, you know, hey, I, it's prescription. No, and... I, I met with him personally, one on one, to I tell see. him what I had. Yeah, but it was as soon as the addiction thing comes out, it was almost like. 
they're afraid to catch it. <laughs> yeah. You know? All right. So you're in the middle of, of active addiction, mm. right? I mean, you've got film career, you know, things are appearing to be going well. You know, you reached out to the pastor, all those kinds of things like that. But yet you've got a wife mm. and two children right. at this point. I mean, h- how does this unfold in the family unit? Right. So first thing really was acknowledging that I had an issue with myself, and that took forever, right? And then um, obviously, like, the wife would look at the bank account, and, and I was spending a lot of money because I was probably doing 15 Roxy's a day, spending like 400 bucks a day. You can't hide that. Eventually, you're going to, you know, it's going to show up somewhere. And so bank account was probably how she first started asking me what was going on. And then I valued honesty over obedience, so I would be honest with her, but still not be obedient, right? And I think a lot of us have that, where we'll be honest and we'll think we'll get an A-plus because we (laughs) told the truth about this horrible thing that we did, but I couldn't change. So I I promised her I could. I'm going to try everything I can do, and we're going to quit this. And, and I didn't understand addiction. She didn't understand addiction. Nobody had ever talked to us about addiction, never heard about it in a sermon, never watched a video. You know, I'd heard of AA as a bunch of crazy people. I didn't know what it was. So I think, um, you know, in retrospect, it's just like, you know, I love the story of Jonah. I love that he was kind of in this addiction to comfort, didn't want to listen to God, tried to go his own way, and that those people on that boat that he was with are his family. And this is like, when I was in recovery, I saw this, but those people on the boat, were well, that was my wife. She was trying everything not to throw me into the water, you know? The cargo was gone. I had done sold stuff, you know, like, you know, the money was, it was an issue. That was gone. You know, they, they were trying everything they could not to throw Joan in the water. That was my wife. She was trying anything to keep me, you know, from going in. But eventually, you know, you, you make some mistakes and you have to, you have to make a change. Yeah. Did she give you any kind of ultimatum there or was it just more... I'm sure there was, but since I was so deep in my addiction, it wouldn't it wouldn't have mattered, you know, mm-hmm. um, because the I was so deep in it that I wanted to have a choice and believed I had a choice, and my addiction might have been telling me that I was on the shore of recovery, but we know that if you're still using, you're in the middle of the ocean, son. You know, you ain't close to the shore for nothing. You know, you might feel that way because you've used less one day, but mm-hmm. I mean, you're in it. If you're still using, you're in it. Yeah, that's right. So you end up at Penfield. Mm-hmm. Great program, by the way. We work very closely with them. Um, so you're there. Yeah. Well, h- how does this play out? Well, I had been there before. So I went in 2017 was the first was the first round. Did a six weeks. Six weeks probably not long enough for anybody to do anything with. And they tell you that at Penfield, you know, just to be clear, like it's it's a great starter program. It gets you some clean time, but they are heavily encouraging you for aftercare and to do other programs. 
But my first round, like, I got this, son. You know, I've done all this stuff. You know, I hadn't quite got the the performance mentality. I was just going to perform my way right out of this. You know, if it's kicked other people's butts, it's not about to kick mine. I got this. And so after six weeks, went back out into the world, got some sober time, got some clean time, but not recovery time. You know, I think there's a difference between not using and actually recovering from something. And um, I think it was just starting projects. And when my grandmother passed away, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And, you know, you just you go back to what you're used to at that point. Your brain just can't do anything different if you're not actually doing anything recovery based. And so after being back in using, you know, trying to hide it as best I can, making a bunch of stupid mistakes just all over the place that would finally just get me arrested. I, at that point, I think came to you and said, Trey, hey, man, I'm going to try something different. I wasn't entirely sure where I was going to go. Me and you chatted, talked about it. And, you know, I think a value in your program is we both kind of made some decisions. My playground is really close to where this is. So I went back to Penfield. And the thing I did different that I think made all the difference was I decided to listen to what the folks in recovery had to say to me, you know, my counselor. I basically just turned my life and will over to my counselor, Robert, for a while. And, you know, I think that's the importance. If you're a step person, you know, step three, turning your your life and will over to a higher power, as it says in AA, well, Robert was a higher power in that moment. You know, the collective group at Penfield was the higher power at that moment. Because remember, I thought I knew God. I thought I was saved. I thought I was a Christian. That wasn't keeping me sober. When they diagnosed me for spiritual confusion, I didn't know what that meant. Hmm. They're like, this guy thinks that he's in ministry. <laughs> this guy thinks, mm-hmm. you know, he knows the scriptures inside and out. He can argue, you know, all kinds of different points of views and theology, but he's in rehab and he just doesn't seem to get it, mm-hmm. you know? So I just said, Robert, what do I need to do? He said, you need to stay for four months. So I just did what Robert said, and he saved my life. You know, I have, That's to, good. I have to give it to him. Yeah. So you stuck around. Did you stay there on the, the main campus, or did I you did. go? Stayed on the main campus, and I helped out guys for four months. Really and cool. just gave up, you know, the, and I literally laid down my career and job at the cross and just was like, you know what, I, if I don't go back to it, I don't go back to it. Yeah. My wife was happy with that decision because guess what? It was a decision that the old Nathan wouldn't have made. Mm-hmm. I would have been so busy to go back home and just get working on a project and just start building something up. And even though things like, if you look at my life from the outside today, like I've got a lot of things going on, but not one of them did I sit and invent <laughs> mm-hmm. right now, right? Yeah. So I just, I, you know, I think he's going to use the things that he put in us to do what he wants, but he wants to do things together. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want us to do something and say it's for him when it's obviously not. Yeah, that's good. Now, I think that, um, you know, you bring up a really good point to a lot of people and parents that are listening too, is that, um, I mean, you're you're just scratching the surface of this thing. I mean, really, sure. I mean, first 30 days, first 90 days, I mean, first four months. First I mean, four months, yeah. Really even, you know, it's a first year before they start to see a substantial mm. increase in the percentage of people that actually make it. Right. Um, but it says something about you to say, hey, the program is done, but I'm going to stay 
when logic says, go back and provide for your family, go back. Now I realize that it's not, you know, hey, wife, you know, go go figure out this mortgage thing. I'm getting ready to bury you guys financially, and there's some things yeah. in place there. But to say, well, which you don't understand, what if you don't understand is, is that if you don't lay the foundation, mm. everything that you're going to build up, I say this all the time to people, it's character that sustains the anointing. It's character that sustains everything that God wants mm. to build in your life. And if you don't have that, then everything that he's attempting to do, like it will come crashing down. That's true. Yeah, totally true. And I think I have to say too, like I had to I had to make it possible to to make that decision too. So, you know, my biz I'd sold my partnership, my business had gone, you know, out the out the window, got audited by the IRS, had to pay them 70 grand. So I had to sell that big house, you know. Mm-hmm. And there was a decision on what we do. Do we just downsize or what do we do? And so recovery was a part of that picture. And so what we decided to do was like, let's, let's, why don't you and the kids move in with the folks and let's, let's do this the right way Yeah. so we can start back at zero. Starting at zero, like career-wise even, like that's where we started. Equipment gone, house gone, everything's gone, and I had me and an iPhone and we've built back <laughs> the business. We built back our lives with just me, Jesus, and an iPhone, man. I mean, yeah. that you can start back at zero. Your comeback can come from anywhere. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget those days. I mean, I was mm-hmm. living in my aunt's house in a pink bedroom, and you know, I'm just looking at my life of just saying, man, I've got all these goals, but I knew that if I missed those fundamental parts, that the things that the Lord was going to do in my life, that it was just it was just all going to keep crumbling down. So mm. that's a huge lesson, man. And it's I think it's probably says a lot about you know why you've been able to rebuild, why you're at the place that you're at today. In recovery, having over a year, it's been an extremely prosperous time for us, which is crazy because I don't feel like I've done any of it. Mm. It's just been God, man. Yeah, you know, it's like you you are got it in tune. That's what it feels like. Yeah. You got it in tune and you listen and you and you wait and you have patience but the question is are you happy? Yeah. Are you do you have peace in your life? What are you chasing? What are you trying to achieve, you know? Is mm-hmm. it somebody else's opinion? Uh-uh. Is it your own definition of success? That's not going to work out for you. That's right. So, I don't know if any of that made sense. Because the story's just so long and convoluted. Now it made a lot of sense. And I think that it's such a good message to those who are, um, you know, currently uh, in recovery. And it really doesn't matter. I mean, the revelation that you talked about, where does your self-worth come from? I mean, there could be people that have been in the church for years that right. are still performance-driven. And and that's not, I mean, obviously you're a hard worker. I'm a hard worker. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with saying, hey... I've got goals, you know, I'm going to go after them, I'm going to be tenacious. But if you're coming from the place of insecurity and I need that and the only thing that my self-worth is attached to is that working That's right. or the amount of zeros in my bank account or anything right. like that. And like you said, I mean, just right now, you know, you bring up a really interesting point too about COVID-19 and just how many people are shelved right now mm-hmm. and they're just tied to... 
all right, I got to go into the office and be the man, or I've got to go do this, or I've got to go do that. And then their gyms and their all their stuff, all these performance-based things are just taken away. And I'm sure it does reveal so much about where people are at and yeah. and just their own insecurities and stuff. And so you hit on this thing of, you know, you've got to get down when everything else is stripped away because all that stuff can be taken away. I mean, mm. the jobs, the careers, the money, the the physical health, I mean, all of that. And then at your core, when you're there in your bedroom, nobody else is around, mm. like, who are you? Yeah, that's it. And that is... Ooh, that's, and, and and that's the place that you really live from. That's it, man. That that is everything, mm-hmm. you know. And this is an opportunity. People have to look at it like they cannot complain about this moment in our in our history, because for the first time they're feeling some something that's uncomfortable in their lives. Just like everybody who's in like a facility right now, you know, listening to this. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, but that mm-hmm. uncomfortable is like a really good place to be. Because you get to learn, like, who were you really, truly born to be? Yeah. And the answer is available. And the answer is that, look, man, you don't need anything else. Yeah. Anything else but the love of Christ. Right. And you didn't come to rehab to go to Bible college either. Yeah. But what you need to do is accept His love and serve somebody. Yeah. And if we do that until we're dead... We're busy. Yeah. Love others, you know? That's exactly right. Love others, um, that's a that's a huge part of it. Love correction. Mm. Um, you know, that that has been, you know, such such a part of the process of whenever people get in there and understanding that, you know, it's like David says in Psalm twenty three, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's right. And then we find ourselves in that place that, you know, it's kind of fun on this side of it, you know, to be able to talk about, you know, what God's done and everything. But a lot of times there's in the process, you know, as you're trying to work this thing out of just saying, okay, I, I don't want to look at that truth. And then whenever that truth comes and we're just saying, hey, I want to get rid of that. But but when the Lord's correction comes, like you can't reject that, Mm-mm. you know, and you've got to be able to sit in that place and knowing that his grace is there, knowing that that he's redefining, you know, what your definition of success is. And then all of these other things in your life, you're saying, hey, I'm doing an overhaul to you. And it might even feel up like, feel like, oh my gosh, like I'm giving up everything. Mm. You know, but the truth is, is that is so pale in comparison to what else you also talked about. And I just feel like that, you know, really even out of Galatians 5, where it's talking about the fruit of the spirit and the love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And as he starts to produce that in your life, like that is the most priceless, most precious gift that we'll ever get on this side of eternity. That's so true. And you know, like, this is like, this is exactly, this is something so, so key, is those fruits of the Spirit, okay? When things weren't going my way, I wasn't very patient, and I wasn't very kind. And turning our will over to His changes the outcomes of those things. So when, if I'm just, if like God is just, if his agenda is my agenda, half the time I'm worshiping myself, you know, because I don't even have any margin whatsoever for things not to go the way that I expect them to. (laughs) So I'm not patient about that. And man, I used to get fired up, you know, I used to just like, Ooh, you didn't want to be like something wasn't going my way. You don't want to be there. You know? Yeah. We know the fruits of the spirit up here. 
but to let him enable those in us as as a as a thing that we do and not just say is the whole game because yeah. like we're supposed to stay in peace stay happy and not let any of those outside circumstances eke us that bad that we would think about going out using that we think about ripping somebody's head off like whatever that it is like we man like i was so bad at this i'd say it i'd know what the verse said and then i'd turn right around and wouldn't live it yeah that's a really good point and you know you brought up some really good material earlier too whenever you were talking about that we practice to be in that place you know that we can um, really grow and develop in being able to live in that place. And we're fighting yeah. to make sure that we stay in the place of freedom. And I know in my own personal life, I go in and out of there. Um, I work in, uh, in, a, in an environment where um, there's so much uh, dishonesty, manipulation, and to, to respond to that um, in certain ways that you know, sometimes, hey, I wish that I would have handled that better. But then also, too, knowing that I've got to be up front with a lot of those situations, but to still stay in that place where, hey, I'm not going to let my peace waver. That's that's it. 100% grace. It's good stuff. Yep. Well, awesome. Nate, it has been a pleasure. I want to come back. Let's go. We'll do it again, <laughs> man. Guys, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. It is a privilege and an honor to be able to serve you. If you or someone in your family is struggling with addiction, please give us a call. It's 770-570-7422.